1: Hello everyone, this is New Books in Human Rights. As you know, every week we pick a book on human rights and host a discussion with its author. Today's guest is Ratri Chandra, an associate professor at University of Delhi with her new book, Knowledge as Property, Issues and the Moral Grounding of Intellectual Property Rights. The book came out in 2010 from Oxford University Press. When we talk of property, we usually mean property over tangible things like a car, a pen, or a house. However, since last 300 years, it has become incredibly important to think of property also as ownership of intangible things like ideas and knowledge. This has developed especially since the advent of Industrial Revolution in England, when even people like Charles Dickens were concerned over the free circulation of books by English authors abroad. So the regime of protecting authorship and intellectual property was developed in England first, and then it spread internationally. This development, however, was followed by a critique, especially by the critique from Global South, about the exclusionary and monopolizing nature of the regime of intellectual property protection. Nevertheless, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the basic international human rights document, contains two articles protecting both the right to private property as well as the right to intellectual property. Rachi Tranta's book asks very important questions in relation to intellectual property. First of all, whether it's fair and justified to think of moral grounding of intellectual property in the same way as we think of moral justifications for owning private property. And then whether both the right to private property and the right to intellectual property should be considered as human rights, as basic entitlements to which each of us is entitled. And then what are the distributional consequences of the regime of intellectual property protection? I will let Ratri answer these questions in the interview. Good morning, Ratri. Morning Anna. Good morning. It's such a great pleasure to have you here and I thank you in advance for the time that you found to talk with us. Thank you. Uh, uh, Yes, uh, Ratri Chandra is um, a scholar and uh, a mentor from India. She's a professor at the University of Delhi, and today we will talk about her new book, "Knowledge as Property: Issues in the Moral Grounding of Intellectual Property Rights," which came out from the Oxford University Press uh, recently. Congratulations on that, Ratri by the way. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Anna.
1: Yes, it's. Um, I, I hope we. I hope we will be able to unfold as many issues as you are able to cover in that book. It's a a very well-researched book. I learned a lot as someone that doesn't know much about intellectual property rights. So I hope that we are able to cover those uh, in the conversation. But before we move to the book, Rachri, could you explain a little bit how did you arrive at the topic? How did did you become to be concerned with intellectual property? Yeah, you know, uh,
0: much before I actually began to uh, think and write about this work i was actually as an appalled indian as an appalled member of the global south already watching the developments that ensued in our parts of the world post 1995 uh, which is when uh the trips regime the wto tips trips regime came into play and uh, i began actually following some of the news reports and the writings and activisms of uh, you know, activists like Vandana Shiva, who runs this research foundation for science, technology, and ecology. Suman Sahai, who heads the gene campaign program here in Delhi. Uh, Martin Core of Third World Network, and so on. And uh, they were all talking about focusing on the one-way g- flow of genetic resources. And exploitation of not just g- genetic resources of the global south, but also of the indigenous communities and their knowledge systems. They were talking about the lack of benefit-sharing mechanisms. Uh, They were talking about uh, issues related to the global commons. Who do the commons belong to? Are they global, uh, which translates into free access for transnational corporations? Are they community-owned? Or do nations have a sovereign right over their own biological resources? So these were some of the issues that were kind of uh, uh, being tackled in their writings. Simultaneously, what also was happening were a number of uh, patent challenges which were going on in the U.S. Uh, a patent and Trade Office and the European Trade and Patent Office against the patenting of uh, traditional uh, plant varieties and traditional uh, medicines and traditional therapeutic uh, things, which, which were very much in the public domain, which were probably as old as history. And I'm here referring to the patent uh, claims which were made on neem, turmeric, basmati, all three actually uh, very, very traditional crops and uh, of of India. Uh, so there were three interesting cases. If you want, I can briefly refer to them of how, you know, what got, got this entire issue into the forefront. Uh, Absol- in 19- ab- yeah.
1: Yes, go ahead. Absolutely. They'll be very interesting. So,
0: yeah. So... Um, In uh, June 19, now now, W.R. Grace and Company are a US based transnational who had claimed a patent on NEEM in both Europe as well as in uh, the US, in many uh, European countries. In 1995, Vandera Shiva, along with, uh, and very interestingly, along with Linda Bullard of the uh, International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements uh, from Germany and uh, Magda Alboet of the Health and Environment Minister of Belgium, they filed and won a patent challenge in the European Patent Office on grounds that the use of neem was as old as history and that the patent on neem was not novel and the patent lacked novelty and inventive step. Again in 1995, and in some senses, the mid-90s were really, really, uh, you know, uh, years of turmoil and ferment, so to say. So in 1995, again, there was a, 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 a... a uh, patent challenge by 200 NGOs from 40 countries uh, against the WR Grace name patent. And uh, this was headed by both Vandana Shiva and Jeremy Rifkins. Uh, 1997, you have the turmeric patent challenge in US by, uh, the, uh, by CSR India. In 1997, there were two uh, very, very interesting cases one in uh, South Africa and 2001 in Brazil, both the governments were actually trying to reform their internal health laws, laws relating to access and pricing of medicines, to actually source antiretroviral medicines, uh, import, parallel import antiretroviral, generic ARB medicines from India and from other countries. In South Africa, this was resisted by 39 pharmaceutical companies. And uh, they challenged the space of sovereign national legislation, stating that it was in contravention to the trips Regime. Uh, eventually, it, of course, they withdrew the complaint because of strong international pressure and mounting public opinion. 2001, Brazil was a similar story where Brazil wanted to enhance its generic drug capacity and allow the parallel importing of generic drugs. Um, by invoking a national emergency and by invoking the compulsory licensing provision in TRIPS. Now, the U.S. complained at the WTO, again, stating that what Brazil, the Brazilian government was doing was in contravention to TRIPS. It eventually again withdrew thanks to, you know, the global mounting pressures. Now, these examples I have cited simply to kind of let you uh, in on the kind, on the climate of indignation that was building up you know, in the global south, and how to us uh, intellectual property rights over pharmaceuticals, over plant varieties, over indigenous knowledge systems were beginning to seem as extremely immoral and unethical. I, you know, uh, and spurred by this, I began to see... uh, connections with political theory, I began to develop my own kind of thesis on this and began to see intellectual property as a right and wanted to question its claim as a, you know, uh, as a right, its moral claim as a right. Wanted to see if it makes the claim because after all, it is claimed and uh, contested from a rights perspective. And therefore the underground, the, the normative claims to a right should be there. That's the reason I began to kind of explore the explore normativity as a criteria for intellectual property rights and that's how i began working in this area
1: yes and if i'm not thank you so much and if i'm not mistaken is this your was this your phd dissertation yes yes yes. this
0: was my phd dissertation yeah excellent
1: so so just before we go into detail into sort of exploring your your claims (coughs) and your arguments for those of us that are not so familiar with intellectual property and to me, that seems to be like a property right over, over knowledge, which which is a bit different than a property right over some tangible things like my car or a house, right? So if you Absolutely. could lead, lead us through sort of the concept of intellectual property and basic tenets of it.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I uh, will really simplify some of the basic terms and at the risk of oversimplification just stating that intellectual property rights are not a monolithic concept. It's an umbrella term for various kinds of entitlements um, which attach to uh, certain types of information, ideas, or other intangibles in their expressed form, in their manifested form. So, the holder of the intellectual property right receives various exclusive rights over his intellectual production or creativity. For instance, a copyright holder would get a, would would uh, get exclusive rights to reproduce, perform, and prepare derivative works over his literary or artistic creations. Over, so copyrights typically are extended to original material in literary, artistic, dramatic, musical works, films, broadcasts, multimedia, computer programs, etc. The second type of uh, IPR would be patents, which are uh, granted for any device, substance, method, or process, which are new inventive and useful. These are the three criteria for patentability, novelty, inventiveness, and utility. Uh, Now, typically, patents grant monopoly rights to patent holders over a period of 20 years. Um, During these 20 years, the patent holder would have exclusive right to not use, but to license and uh, uh, downstream the use of his patented invention right? What they don't cover are laws of nature and abstract phenomena, but what they do cover is an extremely, extremely wide range of things which can cover uh, manifested forms of ideas, industrial inventions, pharmaceuticals, um, plant varieties, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apart from this, there are the older forms of uh, intellectual property rights which are trade secrets which which are typically uh, over certain secret formulations uh, and uh, trademarks which are uh, over symbols and certain identifying characteristics of a particular trade practice. The most recent entrant into the domain of intellectual property rights are uh, what is known as geographical indications. Which uh, basically attach themselves to products which are originating from a particular region, in a manner that they carry the uh, the cultural and the regional stamp of that place. So, for example, champagne, Parma ham, mm-hmm. um, kanjipuram sarees. These would be typical examples of geor- geographical intervention uh, I- indications. I'm sorry. So these are broadly the five kinds of intellectual property rights. Uh, repeating them again: copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, uh, geographical indicators. Excellent. Yeah. So,
1: so how how has it how has the process of t- transforming knowledge into property how has that process unfolded historically? I think that's very interesting to find out because today it's kind of customary to think of copyright as i understand when one writes something then the one understands himself or herself as an author the work is copyrighted but but the, initially this this was a particular form of expressing knowledge or ideas right so what was yes. that, the historical process which led to sort of our common understanding of knowledge as intellectual property
0: yeah Uh, uh, There are two uh, uh, pieces of legislation actually, two conventions, which can be held to be uh, precursors of modern IP protection. Uh, One was the statute of Anne in 1624, and the other statute of monopolies in 1709. Uh, And uh, the statute of Anne related itself to, uh, um, and both together kind of lay the foundation for copyrights, patents, and trade secrets. by and this was in the 17th, uh, the 17th and the 18th century, uh, and these laid the foundations for, uh, you know, uh, the development of copyright and patent regimes. Uh, what happened was were uh, expansions and enhancements of certain provision in both these statutes, and by 1800s, international uh, commerce expanded. Uh, uh, a great deal in the post-industrial revolution period. And uh, a number of British authors, including Charles Dickens began to complain of widespread piracy of British books abroad. Uh, thus, grew a demand for an international codification of regulatory copyright practices. Uh, at the same time, uh, scientists, inventors, especially German inventors raised similar, co- raised similar concerns about invention- their inventions being copied in foreign countries. Now, these concerns and demands culminated in the Paris Convention in 1883, which protected industrial and technological innovations, and uh, uh, in the Bern Convention in 1886, which uh, was for the protection of literary and artistic works. Uh, Since then, there have been several revisions. Uh, uh, One of the most uh, central ones has been the revision in 1967, which led to the formation of the by World Intellectual Property Organization to promote and administer intellectual property. However, even at this stage, uh, intellectual property as a regime did not occupy center stage in the field of rights or in economic theory and practice. Uh, it was pretty much a, a bilateral arrangement between certain developed countries, uh, namely Europe and uh, the U.S. Uh, and also a bilateral agreement, which was between countries of roughly the same development uh, capabilities. Uh, Now, uh, what happened in the 20th century were development and what kind of brought about the paradigmatic change in a sense, were the development of new technology like xerography and electronic information technology in the mid 20th century. Now this uh, brought certain new things into, uh, into play, for instance, copying became far more, uh, far easier. For instance, uh, relaying and sharing of copied material became much easier. And this kind of created a, a newfound nervousness amongst uh, uh, both uh, authors as well as inventors as well as technological uh, experts and scientists. and. Uh, Various enactments were then took place in both Europe and U.S. which finally culminated in the Uruguay uh, Round of the GATT negotiations which ushered in a new multilateral era of multilateral trade policy and TRIPS was one of the outcomes of of this Uruguay Round. Uh, TRIPS is uh, trade related aspects of intellectual property rights which basically tries to bring all intellectual property regimes under one universal global protection regime for uh, to do for intellectual property protection. Basically, an expansion on the Paris and Bern Convention TRIPS, uh, but there is a big fundamental difference here. Uh, TRIPS is far more prescriptive. It is uh, far, uh, it is more universalistic and definitely more exclusionary. And uh, this has had deep implications for changes in the conception of property itself, uh, not only uh, who is the property holder, but also in what can count as property. Uh, a very interesting fact, actually, is the uh, the change in the uh, uh, in the in the in the vocabulary in the in the language that begins to be used in the 18th and 19th century, uh, intellectual. Uh, the the terms that were used were monopolies. And in the 20th century and 21st century, you see lawyers and policymakers increasingly replacing the term monopoly with property, which conveys the impression that these are, uh, you know, after all, uh, similar to interests in land or houses or cars, and they should be accorded similar protection. So broadly, this is the uh, history of, you know, how... uh, uh, property came to knowledge came to be propertized in a sense. And when you were
1: listing the challenges to certain patent claims, I noticed I couldn't help noticing that they emanate from the countries which are termed as emerging economies, India, Brazil, South Africa. So Absolutely. one question one question I had as this international body of law developed in relation to intellectual property, was there any resistance from Emerging economies, or, or the South, or activists in terms of how these, how this, this international laws were formulated, and what were the primary concerns or criticisms in, in this process? If you could elaborate on that. Uh in
0: 1995, when the truth regime came into uh, being, and. Uh, the developed countries were given a window. Some of them were given 10 years to uh, to kind of bring their intellectual property regimes in consonance with, uh, with the international regimes. So uh, in 1995, although uh, countries like India become signatories to the WTO and consequently to TRIPS, they do not automatically uh, were required to offer full protection in 1995. It was only in 2005 that they become fully trips compliant, so to say. Now, between 1995 and 2005, there were a number of uh, uh, misgivings, a uh, number of protests which took place, but and typically they kind of uh, converged around issues of. Uh, say, patent challenges about the invocation of compulsory licensing to, to source generic drugs. Uh, however, there was no concerted global movement to resist uh, uh, because the individual governments themselves had become signatories by then. So in a sense, the government was not uh, speaking in the same language as the activists in these uh, third world countries, particularly health particularly uh, issues relating to access to medicines became one of the focal points of global movements where brazil south africa india uh, thailand these countries were coming together because uh, these are also the countries f- facing extremely severe and challenging you know health concerns uh, and uh, so uh, pharmaceutical patents actually began to be seen as a big big problem and a lot of global networking began to happen uh, around uh, pharmaceutical patents
1: and at the same time at the same time so intellectual property has has become to be understood as a human right which one if one is coming from sort of liberal tradition of human rights, could understand as a very positive thing for indole- individual development or individual happiness. So, how can we, can you lead us to the way to how has intellectual property become to be understood as an a human right, as an individual entitlement, as a claim, as something to which every, each, each and every human being is entitled?
0: Let me kind of, uh, rephrase this a bit because I have problems in considering intellectual property as a human right. I see Uh intellectual property more as economic entitlements, as a reward in the form of monopoly rights over innovation. Uh Uh, uh, Although I agree with you that uh, in uh, the UDHR and International Convention of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, there is a mention of intellectual property as a human right, but the focus is entirely different from the way trips the WTO understands it, you know, even in UDHR and uh, international convention of economic, social and cultural rights references to intellectual property are more in the nature of individual and people's rights to preserve traditional knowledge. Then secondly on the right of everyone to enjoy the benefits of scientific progress and its application, the right of everyone to enjoy the benefits of, um, uh, of of uh, intellectual production. Um, so from both moral and material, uh, benefit from the moral and material interests of authors and inventors. So uh, both in UDHR and International Convention of uh, Economic, uh, Cultural and Social Rights, there is an econo- acknowledgement of both individual and cultural rights. Cultural, mm-hmm. uh, cultural uh, collective rights of communities over their knowledge systems as well as individual individuals rights over their innovative activity however the WTO policies rarely factor in human rights consideration so they do not see uh, they do not see a consonance or they do not see an intersection between uh, the economic entitlement of individual innovators or or authors and uh, uh, human rights consideration. In fact, the compliance, in fact, compliance to WTO at times mandates that these regimes rely primarily on economic considerations and not on human rights considerations. So it's a kind of um, a mixed bag when you uh, it if you if you say that intellectual property is a human right, you are at the same time trying to obfuscate kind of. Uh, uh, you know, kind of override some of the underlying contradictions between IP rights and human rights themselves. So I'd say knowledge is a human right, but definitely not intellectual property as a human right.
1: That's very interesting and also shows how, and it has been also highlighted in some other literature, how the two two regimes, sort of two worlds, the human rights world and the WTO, the trade world, are kind of separated and divorced from each other. Uh, but uh, So another question that I had, is, and which I think boils down to your central argument in your book. So you explain in your book what are the traditional sort of mo- more accepted moral groundings for property rights? Mm-hmm. And then you argue that these should not automatically apply to, other, to, to entities which are not tangibles, because intellectual property is different by its nature. So before we move to your central argument, uh, could you explain us, to, to us what you consider as the sort of main justifications, main moral groundings for right to property?
0: Yeah, uh, let me kind of just explain the fundamental difference between (coughs) uh, old forms of property which were were tangibles, both movable and immovable. Movable like cars and uh, pencils, pens, and immovables like land and house. Uh, Let me just distinguish between uh, old tangible forms of property and new intangible forms of property, and then I'll try to demonstrate how the uh, the earlier uh, principles of legitimation do not hold good for uh, new forms of property, over intangibles or over biological forms of property. Uh, now, the fundamental difference uh, between the two is uh, that property rights over tangibles were created to resolve problems of scarcity. So you had a world, you had a world of scarce resources, and property rights were created to resolve problems of uh, appropriation, allocation, and distribution now hello hello yes, yes, I'm here Sorry. yes uh, the now the second category of property, which is over ideas and intangibles, is paradigmatically different category of property because interestingly it it does not exhibit the same identifying characteristics as old property because of one, two main reasons. One, that it is not plagued, that the world of ideas, the world of knowledge is not plagued by the problem of scarcity. There is an infinite source of ideas. Use of ideas do not lead to its exhaustion. All right? So the first defining characteristic of the world of ideas is that they are infinite and they are characterized by non-exhaustion the second interesting characteristic which again makes it fundamentally different from tangible forms of property is that ideas can be used concurrently for example if uh, if if you are singing your song and i copy your song it does not divest you of, of your use of the song if i stole your car you would no longer be able to drive that car but if i stole your song it does not use you, you. You can still use your song. You can still sing your song. You can still sell your song, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, non-exhaustion and concurrent use. These two properties of intangible intangibles like ideas and knowledge make it fundamentally different. And therefore, property rights were not. Implied naturally, so to say, in this realm, because this was a realm which was not scarce, property rights were not implied naturally. Therefore, a the law was made to step in and create an artificial scarcity by preventing a free flow of ideas. If you if you get what I mean, you know. Uh, so the free flow of ideas, disclosures, sharing of knowledge, sharing of ideas uh, were curbed through patents, readers' rights, copyrights, and so on. Um, so this was the fundamental uh, difference. Now, what is what are the two main principles of legitimation that I have identified in my book? One is the principle of self-ownership. Now, self-ownership is a very, very powerful way of expressing sovereignty over your own self. So self-ownership says that I own myself and therefore, as the owner of myself, I also own the talents and skill that I own. Therefore, and this is a typical Lockean argument, an argument that John Locke uses to justify uh, 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 liberty as well as right to property, absolute rights and liberty and uh, property. And he says that because I own my knowledge, and this is something which is quote even in Nozick, where he says that uh, 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 you know, men have freehold in themselves. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you hold yourself as a property and you own all the talents and skills that you have. Therefore, Locke says, and again, echoed by a neo-Locke in Nozick, that anything that I create using my talents, using my skills, is mine to own as well. All right? So Mm -hmm. if I use my labor to create a pot, if I use my labor to till land, then that land is mine, that pot is mine to own, right? Now, uh, Locke argues, and as does Nozick, that property rights were actually an extension of the principle of liberty. So property rights were a variant to extend liberty rights. Uh, If if a man truly wanted to be free, then he ought to be given complete property rights. Absolute property rights in what in, in whatever he created. This was also echoed in Kant who says that uh, freedom requires separate property. Uh, now what the second principle that I allude to, so this became a justification for private property, self ownership. I own myself, therefore I own whatever I create with my self owned labor. The mm-hmm. second uh, principle of legitimation was utility which is basically that in a world of scarce resources, I need to have property rights, rules which define who ought to get what property, rules of allocation, rules of appropriation, rules of distribution. So it's a system which actually creates wealth, as Adam Smith would say, or a system which actually maximizes utility, as Jeremy Bentham would say. Now, my argument is one of the two main arguments in this book is when you translate these two principles to the realm of intellectual property, they do not hold good. And one of my motivations for doing this was to actually adopt a very minimalistic perspective, not question property rights, not question absolute property rights, but actually to see if the principles of legitimation hold good for intellectual property rights. And uh, as I conclude, they do not and evacuate the... Evacuate intellectual property rights of the very premises on which it rests. That was my motivation. Now, why do they not rest? Should I, uh, you know, um, the first is the principle of self-ownership. Now, if self-ownership is primarily a tool, or is primarily a principle which uh, celebrates the liber- celebrates and protects the liberty of of individuals, which is considered to be inviolable in liberal philosophy, then my argument is that intellectual property rights only protect and celebrate the liberty of the creator, of the person who is awarded the intellectual property right. Mm -hmm. So if I hold the patent, my liberty is protected because I'm the patent holder and I'm free to use my invention in any way that I want. However, if you simultaneously either through the process of copying, and let, let's forget copying. If you simultaneously invent something and you probably are two hours late in claiming that patent, then you are not granted that right over your invention. So your labor is actually not rewarded. You you are divested of your liberty over the property that you have created.
1: Do I make myself clear, Anna? Absolutely. A very clear
0: and very understandable. Yes, yes. So uh, so when self-ownership is kind of translated to apply to intellectual property rights, there is a, a, a fundamental contradiction because intellectual property rights are basically contravening the like liberty of other, a non-negotiable proviso in both Locke and Nozick. Mm-hmm. All right. So it contravenes forget about uh, social democratic welfareist norms. It contravenes minimalistic libertarian norms which protect, which seek to protect uh, liberty. All right. So uh, my first argument or my first conclusion is that self-ownership, uh, you know, cannot be applied to, I mean, look at history. Uh, history is replete with examples. Um, James Watt was granted a patent over... Uh, 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 The steam engine. Uh. Now James Watt uh, and Hornblower, who had independently designed the Hornblower uh, engine, did not have to face legal challenges from James Watt. James Watt died a rich man and Hornblower had to close shop and died in jail. Mm -hmm. Look at Wright, Wright Brothers. So history is replete with examples of simultaneous invention, but only the The the, the person who's recognized as the inventor is the one who's rewarded, is the one who's accorded property rights. And the person who's not the first knower who falls back because of certain circumstances, people like Tesla, people like uh, uh, um, uh, Popov, you know, uh, uh, lose out in the process. So the claim Mm -hmm. of the first knower is discriminatory. It It discriminates against like liberties of the others. So the second principle that I uh, think is one of the uh, central legitimating principles of uh, property rights, especially intangible resources, is the principle of utility. And recall that I said that utility fu- fundamentally, the principle of utility fundamentally argues, or uh, the propounders of the principle of utility fundamentally argue, that private property rights help to organize a society and organize production much better private property rights help to allocate... Hello? Yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm listening. Yes. Mm -hmm. So private property rights help to allocate distribute resources in the most efficient and most productive manner. Uh, When I transfer this principle to see if it uh, holds good for intellectual property rights, I find there is again a problem. Now, I have taken utility to mean not just economic utility, so not just efficiency, productivity, and so on, but also social utility i try tried to argue that the common good argument doesn't hold good for IPRs because there are huge social costs that are in- incurred. And uh, some of the important ones are, for example, uh, because of patenting, there are higher transaction costs, which are in fact, there are multiple licensing agreements which have to be entered into um, patent sanction monopoly rights and therefore, manda- and therefore also sanction monopoly prices. And reduced access to resources, uh, patents diminish uh, the public domain, forest seeds, etc. And it is extremely problematic to assert that intellectual property rights can find legitimation in the principle of utility, because utility fundamentally is any utilitarian would do a fundamental cost-benefit analysis, and this cost-benefit analysis has to factor in costs. That are incurred by the society in terms of the social costs, in terms of the health costs, in terms of the reduced access costs, in terms of all the other costs that are non economic as well. And therefore, uh, uh, an integrated utilitarian argument, uh, expanded notion of utility, would, would definitely lead us to conclude that the number of costs that are incurred in by the intellectual property rights regime is far, far higher than um, the gains to, the economic gains to the private property, uh, intellectual property holders. Yeah, and it especially targets the vulnerable and the poor communities. The social costs are especially borne by the poor, vulnerable communities of the world. So these two principles, both self-ownership and there are many, many uh, principles, but these are the two central principles of property which have endured and which have also found expression in intellectual property uh, justifications.
1: Very interesting. And what I notice here is when you discuss, and it's also, there's an extensive chapter in your book about sort of your discussion and your take on the idea of knowledge and sociology of knowledge. And here also when you discuss your move from sort of moral grounding in uh, property to intellectual property, I I see that there's a particular theory of knowledge that, that sort of is at the background, right? You discuss that knowledge yeah, yeah. as an as an inexhaustible resource. So, could you sort of explicate a little bit on what is your theory of knowledge that underlines this work?
0: My, I, I do not have a distinct uh, uh, theory of knowledge which is separate from the sociology of knowledge or school of thought, and I do uh, uh, do adhere to the fact that knowledge is something which is essentially socially constructed and socially constituted. And ideas are not something that exists out there, independent of societies, independent of histories. Ideas are socially determined. And this was uh, the sociology of knowledge. That knowledge was socially constructed was uh, first and foremost kind of uh, propounded by Karl Mannheim, And uh, this position was later reinvented by Luckman and Berger to suggest that knowledge is not just socially constructed. Knowledge is not just a passive thing the society is constituting, but in the process of being constituted, knowledge is also constituting reality. So there is a dialectical relationship, not just uh, knowledge being a product, but knowledge being a determinant of reality as well. So knowledge and reality in a dialectical relationship with each other. Now uh, this position was further refined by people like McCarthy Doyle and others. Who move from the social constituency of knowledge and focus on the function of knowledge. And here, because they regard knowledge as fundamentally a capacity for action. And here they focus on both the productive as well as the ideological function of knowledge. Productive because it gives you the capacity to create. For example, if I am a professor, my knowledge gives me the capacity to earn, so therefore it's a product. therefore knowledge is performing a productive function. Uh, it helps to allocate and distribute resources. Now, uh, knowledge also, and this is important uh, uh, part of what McCarthy Doyle says, that knowledge also performs a ideological function because it is it is a structuring discourse. It creates. It decides who the knowledge holder is. It decides what constitutes knowledge. It decides what is scientificity. It decides it adjud- adjudicates on what is objectivity, which knowledge is true, which knowledge is false. So therefore, it kind of creates hierarchies of knowledge. And in creating hierarchies of knowledge, it also performs an ideological function because there is a distribution of power to the holders of knowledge and uh, are taking away a part from the people who have been designated as uh, holders of Either irrational, unscientific, or spoke knowledge or belief, and such like. So, knowledge performs dual function. Now, um, there is a third aspect, there's a fourth aspect actually to sociology of knowledge, which is basically not just contesting sociological knowledge, knowledge of the society, knowledge of the human world, but also contesting that scientific knowledge is objective. Hmm? and that scientific knowledge basically is an aggregation of facts and that facts cannot be contested and that it is uh, sort of trans-historical, trans in that knowledge, only true knowledge is one that is objective. Now this was the positivist conception of knowledge which held that the only no- knowledge which is uh, worth being considered as true knowledge is scientific knowledge. Uh, now, uh, beginning with Thomas Kuhn, who, who asserted the historicity of science, uh, where he asserted that science is relative to history, and uh, therefore is not as immutable or as objective or as epistemologically unique as it is made out to. And now several others actually have, uh, who uh, promote what is called the strong program in sociology, uh, people like H.M. Collins, Barry Barnes, Stephen Shaping, David bloor uh, focus on the social dimension of scientific practice, not just sociological knowledge, not just knowledge of the society and the human world, but on the sociology of scientific knowledge as well. Science itself by them is considered to be an interpretative act. So, uh, And uh, one of their core and central conclusions would be that scientific facts are both socially and cognitively institutionalized. And there's a very interesting... Uh, uh, a thing that I read in McCarthy Doyle's book, which, uh, you know, uh, critiquing the objectivity of facts, she states, uh, and I quote, that facts are like cows. You stare at them hard and they run away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, here she's, she, she's trying to suggest that facts are also, uh, you know, uh, not immutable, not transcendental kind of entities which cannot be contested. Facts are also created. facts are also interpretative facts. So sociology of knowledge, why I brought sociology of knowledge and sociology of scientific knowledge into this book was to suggest the contextual, historical, intergenerational knowledge of uh, character of knowledge. And to argue that because knowledge is contextual, because knowledge is historical, therefore to lay individual claims on creation of knowledge is faulty, Mm -hmm. is a problematic premise.
1: Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. So it's like mummifying something that shouldn't be mummified because it's always in, trans- in the process of transcendence.
0: Absolutely. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. And there's a, there's a part- in relation to your discussion of science, there's a particular concept which I would appreciate if you would elaborate, and that's the concept of science citizenship. And you argue in the book that uh, existing regime of intellectual property rights sort of uh, doesn't support integration of marginalized groups. Uh, in in the scientific processes, as I understand, so I, yes. I would I would appreciate since we we are expected to be listened to by the scholarly community, I would appreciate if you would uh, elaborate on that con on that concept in particular.
0: Yeah, the issue of uh, science and citizenship is actually linked to the issue of uh, uh, intellectual property rights as power, and closed systems of knowledge like uh, the uh, uh, intellectual property rights regime actually restrict disclosure and free flow of information and uh, because they are restrictive they are actually uh, because they are restrictive because they are partial because they are taking sides because they are uh, uh, classifying knowledge into what is uh, scientific and unscientific they are all you know what gets as Foucault said what what is what constitutes knowledge and what is excluded who is designated as a qualifier, no qualified knower always in, involves an act of power. Mm-hmm. Now the issue of uh, citizenship is linked to contesting the hierarchies of power, the hierarchies of the knowing and the knowledgeable that, the reg- that a regime like IPR has created. Uh, it is trying to contest particular views of science and technology which gets embedded into global networks institutions and policy and legal frameworks uh, what began as a contestation around issues of biopiracy uh, has kind of moved on and incorporated uh, a demand for traditional resource rights for community property rights access and benefit sharing mechanism farmers rights all rights that are collective in nature so uh, while particular views of science while particular views of knowledge actually limit citizenship, there is also a parallel movement which is trying to gain induction into the setup. At what cost the induction is going to happen, at what cost the integration is going to happen is another question. But there are issues of collective rights which are constantly being posed to the intellectual property rights regime, to the TRIPS regime. Um, uh, and fundamentally, when you question particular universalistic notions of science, objectivity, and knowledge, there is also an assertion at the same time of uh, plural, collective notions of knowledge. That there there is a plurality of knowledge, um, that knowledge is essentially collective in nature. And uh, uh, contesting of universal notions of knowledge, this is what claims of citizenship are, actually. Uh, people who are trying to claim integration with the system are trying to do. Mm-hmm. So it is being framed around principles of reasonable pluralism, collective rights, and so on. You know, uh, There's a long way to go, because currently uh, the kind of uh, rights that have been uh, accorded to collectives are in the nature of access and benefit sharing mechanisms, farmers' rights, uh, to name two of them, Now, these are rights which are actually stripped to the bare minimum uh, so as to kind of um, enable the intellectual property rights to, uh, you know, function well. These are more in the nature of neoliberal spaces of governmentality rather than, um, uh, you know, a fair democratic principles of citizenship that are being adhered to. Yeah. Very interesting. And and there's a particular um,
1: theory of rights which... uh, emanates from your book and which i think is your very serious contribution to the field of human rights <laughs> on my yeah. very humble opinion but it's because i found Thank it you. very interesting uh, and that theory states that basically for the rights to be legitimate claims they have to be in relation in a dialogue with other rights so you cannot take an isolated human right and then hold strong upon it unless it's in a in a constant relationship an engagement with other rights. That's my sort of my take yeah, on yeah. on what on your thesis. But what I would appreciate if you could explain is first of all that theory of rights, and then how does that relate to the moral grounding, moral justification of intellectual property rights?
0: Yeah. Uh, the first argument which I've already kind of outlined uh, is that property rights need to have strong normative grounds to justify them, because property rights at the end, are exclusionary in nature. They uh, they are exclusionary in nature. And uh, I have tried to say that even on normative grounds, even on minimalistic grounds, liberty, property rights, intellectual property rights cannot be uh, defended because they are not consistent with liberty claims of other people. Now, the second argument is that if there are not good enough normative grounds for intellectual property rights, then they should at least have good consequences. Mm-hmm. They should at least be judged for the consequences they generate. And consequences which are not just economic, but which are right sensitive. Mm-hmm. So how well do rights, intellectual property rights conjoin with human rights, other rights of other people? How well? are they in um, a conversation or in a dialogue with other human rights, becomes an additional ground to claim or disclaim rights. All right? So if, if your right is stepping on my toe, then your right has a weaker claim than if your right is in a kind of dialogue or if it conjoins with my right. So, uh, yes, I agree that rights have to be in dialogue with each other. And rights which infringe or abrogate other rights have weaker claims than rights that do not. So in that sense, compulsibility of rights becomes a necessary condition for claiming legitimacy. And Mm -hmm. in my book, I take three rights, which are all aspects of human rights. I take uh, health rights, uh, farmer's rights, and uh, knowledge rights. And I've explicated each one of these rights through a case study. Um, I have tried to argue that intellectual property rights infringe on health rights. Because they, um, they push up because they push up the prices of drugs because drugs are at monopoly prices as much as 10 to 20 times, sometimes even more higher than generic drugs, which leads to reduced access. The reduced access is a contravention of health rights of many, many people. Um, access to medicine is vital to the preservation of the right to health, and that is what Intellectual property rights or patents infringe upon. The second right that I've taken is the farmer's rights, and here I've taken an example actually from U.S. Uh, uh, of McFarland versus Monsanto, where McFarland was sued because uh, he did not pay Monsanto the license fee for the seeds that he saved. So the traditional right to save seeds, which was which is almost considered as a natural right of a farmer, is being taken away from from him because that right, that patent right has been granted to a company like a corporation like Monsanto. Uh, You can argue that the right to save seeds is a natural right of the farmer, and these rights are taken away as IPRs in agriculture actually facilitate control over seeds at the expense of uh, small and marginal farmers' ability to save and replant seeds. So um, it reduces access of farmers to seeds, and apart from that, apart from restricting, saving, and replanting. Seed control also weakens the genetic pool of open-pollinated seed varieties, uh, creates monoculture. So there are a lot of issues here uh, which are linked to issues of livelihood of small and marginal farmers because biodiversity, after all, is also an issue. Of, uh, is, it can also be linked to issues of livelihood of small uh, farmers. So... Um, Again, I argue that intellectual property rights are, in, are in, infringe upon farmers' rights. And especially in the developing world, especially in least, uh, least developed countries and the LDCs, small and marginal farmers become very, very vulnerable when they are caught in the market nexus of sourcing seeds for their uh, fields. The third re- right that I take is uh, knowledge rights. And here I have referred to... Uh, Hello. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just keep saying. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The third right I've take, the third right that I have uh, human right that I've taken is uh, our knowledge rights. And I've referred to uh, two contestations, uh, which I've referred to earlier also in this talk uh, uh, by Vandana Shiva, uh, two name patent claims, one in the U.S. patent office and the other in um, the european patent office referred to other examples as well like basmati turmeric ayahuasca maca enola beans Uh, the south has been an endless source of agricultural and pharmaceutical genetic material and Mm. there are innumerable examples of appropriation of traditional knowledge by way of patents, which are granted on derived application now this is in complete contravention to what ought to be regarded as sovereign rights of the traditional communities over their resources, over their practices of knowledge. So these are the three uh, uh, three sort of case studies that I have taken uh, to demonstrate that IPRs are not in dialogue with human rights and that there is on grounds of human rights, it is very, very difficult to justify uh, intellectual property rights. Mm-hmm.
1: Very interesting, and perhaps uh, my final question, based on what I understood from your book and your narrative. Uh, so it seems to be a very rare and very insightful critique of intellectual property rights and the moral grounding and and their moral groundings. So I was I was I'm thinking whether you also, as the author, understand your book as such contribution to the field, and where do you think your your uh, manuscript stands in relation to the mainstream literature on intellectual property?
0: There, uh, Look, uh, there are a number of books, there are a number of writings, articles, uh, which actually critique intellectual property rights from a consequentialist p- perspective, that is in terms of the outcomes they generate. Mm-hmm. So whether it is from the perspective of activists, whether it is in, from the perspective of uh, global global administrative law, uh, there is a critique of intellectual property rights which is happening. But at the same time, uh, most of these critiques are actually at the same time also trying to fine-tune the system of intellectual property rights so as to enable the regime to address certain human rights issues. But in the process, what is happening is that human rights are kind of trimmed and stripped down to their bare minimum so that they fit in with the larger regime, with the larger interest of intellectual property, IPR regime, which is to create value for the innovators, mm-hmm. right? Now, um, where I think my book would make an, a, a contribution is uh, because I think I derive Morality, both from deontological normative grounds as well as from consequentialist grounds, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to suggest that there is a moral problem, whether you examine the deontological grounds of normativity or whether you are, whether you examine the consequentialist grounds. There is a problem with the fundamental idea of regarding knowledge as property itself. No matter how much you fine tune the larger machinery eventually it will have snags, eventually it will step on toes, eventually it will leave the vulnerable communities more vulnerable because it is a system which is fundamentally uh, within its soul probably unethical. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for for your time and uh, for your willingness to talk to us. That was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
1: This is Anna Dolidze on New Books and Human Rights. As you know, every week we pick a book on human rights and have a discussion with its author. Today our guest was Rajshree Chandra with her excellent book, Knowledge is Property, Issues and the Moral Grounding of Intellectual Property Rights. This is New Books and Human Rights. Hope to have you here next week.